Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- 451-4220. Hey Bainbridge, Office Expats, the co-working space in the pavilion is a shared office for those of us who work remotely. We have fast fiber Wi-Fi and organic coffee. Keep us in mind too as a location for board meetings, depositions, or treat your team at work to an island offsite. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. GreatNorthernElectric.com, serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. What's cracking, Podcastville? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today, my guest is John Comerford. John, how are you doing today? Hey, I am well. Good. I appreciate you taking the time out. I know you're a busy, busy man. Hmm. Um, working on very little sleep, so I really appreciate you coming in. Hey, you got this new film out, Lynch, A History. How how exciting is this film for you? I know you've, you've done a lot of different films, but uh, this one seems real close to home. Yeah, I was um, approached by the uh, writer-director, um, David Shields. About, he's, he's a professor at UW? Yeah, about two years ago. And uh, David and I were um, having dinner, actually, with a couple of other filmmakers, with uh, um, Robinson DeVore and Charles Mudede. And um, we were discussing um, a fictional narrative project that David uh, had done a draft of. But... 
as happens, you know, you go into a relationship or a meeting and you think it's about one thing, but it ends up being about something else. So you have to be open to that process um, when interacting with uh, creative people in particular. So when David called me with um, a uh, report about a rough cut for um, which was entitled Lynch, a history at that point, now it is entitled Marshawn Lynch, a history. And that was the distributor's decision to add Marshawn at the front um, because of uh, not confusion in the marketplace. There's no other Lynch of histories. But people were literally thinking it was the subject was about lynching. And so we wanted to uh, divorce ourselves from that idea. So mm. Marshawn Lynch of history is the title now that's being circulated. But when David um, shared the film with me, I knew probably in the first 30 minutes of it that this was something that I really wanted to work on. Well, the um, subject matter period, Marshawn Lynch film, that, that sounds exciting to me right away. Yeah, it was the energy of the film that was so unique and unusual because of the way that um, uh, David and uh, James have edited together the clips in the film uh, in sort of a uh, uh, staccato and um, repetitious kind of assault on the senses. Uh, I felt this is a visionary piece because I don't think five years ago you could really digest it entirely. Right. We were going through it, actually. Yeah. Like it was it was the modern time and we were having a difficult time understanding why players were kneeling for the anthem and the transition from Obama to Trump and a lot of crazy things going on. Yeah, both the content part of it and then also the um the style of the film yeah, it's very avant-garde huh yeah it's um uh, a collage uh of images and it's um non-stop so the way that we perceive the world because of the internet and primarily because of social media feeds we now have moment to moment um exposure to images in a flow and that type of flow, which comes primarily from social media feeds and um, high-speed networks, has created a uh, new possibilities for storytelling and for language. And I could see that David was in the middle of that with this subject. Yeah, and there's no narration necessarily in this movie, correct? It's just Right, it's clips. a tapestry. It's all um, James and David working together to create um, clips of dialogue that you can follow that are stitched together. So other people's words um, create uh, the puzzle of what this narrative is. Yeah, I haven't ever seen a movie like that where the clips are of various things becomes the storyteller. Yeah, we in, in uh, our jazz documentary series, we did Icons Among Us Jazz in the Present Tense. We relied on that to a degree, but we had many, many um, uh, sit-down interviews also. So we relied on the traditional, what they call in documentary uh, filmmaking, talking head um, to basically provide um, a story. And that is a, a much easier mountain to climb than uh, just using found footage. Yeah, because there was no interview of Marshawn in this movie um, by the director. And it was just a collage of all these different moments in time. It seems like that would have been would have been the biggest editing nightmare <laughs> of a lifetime. I mean, how many hours does that did that take to? There's got to be seven hundred 
clips or something. Yeah, there's 700 clips, and I think the rough version I saw, they had been at it for um, over a year of um, focused work. Um, not full-time necessarily, but um, David's uh, style and also um, the quality of his uh, brilliance is um, very high energy and very um, it really pulses. And so whenever I come into contact with an artist where their, uh, you know, sort of their, their personality attributes, their rhythm and their energy matches the art that they're creating and it's, um, it's resonant, I always take note of that because that continuity usually means that uh, you're going to have something powerful. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about David. He's a professor. He's an author of a few books, mm-hmm. and this was his first uh, toe in the water for movies, correct? Yeah, um, it is. Um, the film is loosely based on um, his book uh, entitled uh, "Black Planet" um, from uh, a number of years ago. I think it was more of, let's say, not based on, but perhaps primary inspiration for the film itself. And um, his uh, rhythm and energy with words and the way he writes is also uh, reflected in the film. Yeah, he's done a lot on race, correct? Yeah, yeah. He's um, Race and sports are um, absolutely in his uh, DNA. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see Tupac in this movie. Hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the the constant oscillation between time gone by and, and current time and then flexing back and forth between Marshawn being a youth and what he's like today. Mm-hmm. And the overwhelming thing, even though there was a, just a drinking from the fire hose collage of clips and stuff, the thing I think that radiates with me and maybe some other uh, viewers of this film as well is the silence and the power of the silence of Marshawn. Yeah, that really caught me um, in terms of uh, primary theme of the film when I was watching in that first 30 minutes was um, the suggestion that uh, Marshawn's silence is really a form of protest. Um, The politics of refusal, refusing to do things, is um, really interesting. Um, And we had a moment actually in the uh, Q&A uh, during our Oakland screening. It was actually the second screening that we um, added um, because the first one had sold out rapidly. And at the end of that Q&A, a woman probably in her, I'm guessing late 40s, early 50s, um, shared with the audience that she at work um, was having a difficult time navigating the politics in her office, particularly because she is a late 40-year-old black woman from Oakland. And the way she was perceived had her walking on eggshells a lot concerning raising her voice, concerning um, resisting things, topics, um, anything to do with um, uh, countering sort of the uh, managerial narrative, very aware of her race and her, her gender. So she said she had never thought about actually using silence as a form of communication when she disapproved of things or didn't want to partake in them. And she said the film had opened the window to that possibility of um, allowing her um, dissent into the room without uh, 
fearing sort of that race context coming into the situation. So that was incredible. I mean, incredible to hear from somebody um, at this screening that literally, you know, within minutes of the film ending, um, she had another strategy for for living in her workplace. Yeah, there's so many lines you can draw about this movie, Um, whether it be, you know, for lack of a more intelligent thought process here is, you know, did Marshawn think he was a slave to the NFL and was this a defiant thing? Um, why is it okay for somebody like Belichick to have silence and everything's fine and then Lynch has silence and then it's a huge problem? Um, it's That seemed like a, a product of race. I also kind of surprised that Kaepernick had so much against him, going against him but they tolerated and and made exceptions for Marshawn sometimes. Um, when they were playing down there in Mexico, he took a knee for the national anthem, but he stood for the Mexican anthem. And he's often said that other countries are better than America, just outwardly. And, you know, Kaepernick had that same type of silence. And we've seen that type of silence from Jesse Owens all the way to modern day. And, at what point does it become more of an equal silence? Like we're all kind of saying the same thing by not saying something. Yeah. I, I think that, um, I mean, I, per, on a personal level, especially being a producer, I'm often trying to fill uh, the space with words and with ideas and to, um, you know, advance them uh, from multiple angles in order to, hopefully get, um, you know, to the essence of the communication I'm trying to offer. It's emotional, intellectual, whatever um, capacity it's in. But silence in terms of uh, art, let's say, um, let's talk about music. Uh, One of the great um, appliers of silence in contemporary music is uh, Miles Davis. And that musician in particular for me was the first one where I was like note to self that the absence of something is incredibly powerful inside of a context. And this politics of refusal and Marchand's silence, um, it, it links, and let me see if I can build this bridge here for, um, for you and for, um, for the listeners of the podcast. Um, with Marchand, there was... Um, this physical um, reality for him being a football player in the sense that he's um, an athlete who moves through physical space and he has to dodge things, people trying to subdue him and also um, break free from contact. So the idea, maybe a dancer could, you know, connect with this of having to move through space and do that. Now that part of his you know reality in the game ends there's no more movement through space in that way no more evading things no more uh intense and explosive exertion all of that now comes to rest and now you're in the locker room and all of a sudden you're surrounded by people literally who are all sticking microphones in your face shining lights on you and asking questions that ultimately um, 
must serve them as you know, reporters and as individuals who are interested in creating content for their um, uh, reporting responsibilities. Watching this over and over in the film, and I mean from the perspective of being a, a consulting producer who joined it, meaning I'm not the editor, I've watched, you know, something let's say three, four times, and the editor and director watched it 300 times. But for me, and also for, for David, it turned out, the idea of Marshawn, and, and somebody told us this in Oakland, any kid in Oakland who was surrounded by people who were insisting on getting an answer, who were white, um, up in their grill, that's like getting interrogated by the police. Yeah, you could see the stress on his face sometimes where one reporter would ask the question, he would he would say something simply like thankful or yeah. He, he definitely knew that, you know, the whole I'm just here so I won't get fined thought process was he didn't, it was an obligation that he had to fulfill because it was his contract, but he wasn't going to fulfill it much further than one word. But to see seven people ask the same question seven different ways when it's obvious that he's not going to answer it any different. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. I'm thankful. Yes, next. Yes, next. Yes, next. And then you see him put his um, head in his hand and just rub his face. And you could just see the pain of the insistence of those microphones in his face over and over and over. And then when you get the barrage of clips where you see eight different games and there's 30 people in a horseshoe around him and he can't move or get out of there and they're all asking the same asinine question, it's painful to watch and you really feel what he's going through. Yeah, and, and one of the things about his, um, his being, and this really attracted me to the film too, is that he is um, just inescapably authentic. He is 100% real all the time. And if that real part says to him, let's say on an emotional level, I don't want to respond to you and your you know, insistence with inane question number 26B because I just finished the game and I'm only here, as he said, so he doesn't get fined. Like literally that's the operating principle because he's not interested as the film goes on to um, uh, create a bit of a discourse on. He's not uh, interested in being viewed as a um, as an animal. And that is um, a very deep and powerful thing that our film gets into and that David and the editor James uh, I think really masterfully um, – create an opportunity for, you know, I'm a 52-year-old privileged white guy. That's who I am. But it gives me and everyone like me an opportunity to flip the script and to look through a different lens. And David, I think, very successfully in the film, judging by its impact on, let's say, um, the local community of origin where all this comes from, which is Oakland, California, because that's Marshawn's birthplace and where he was raised uh, into the, uh, the athlete and person that he is today. Um, that lens of the world through those eyes becomes available to you to a degree through watching this film. 
And that's miraculous. And that's a big reason to do what I do or the reason why I do what I do, because um, film has that capability to put you in someone else's shoes. Yeah, there's so many times I felt for him in this movie, but one of them was when he was getting being raised in Oakland and then he was super excited to go to college and got to go to Cal and then his reward is Buffalo. And here's a kid, sunny California all his life and then he has to go to, you know, two feet of snow and he, just by the the transition from West Coast to East Coast, that's huge for a young man to go through. And then people treated him much differently out there than they did in Oakland. And it was almost a disservice to to his abilities as a person. And I can't help but think that there were some race, racial issues going on in Buffalo and how they were handled and how he was perceived. And then you see how he came to Seattle and Pete just put his arms around him and embraced him. And they were completely on the same page laughing and stuff like that. And he could be that honest guy all the time. I remember the play where they didn't call his number. He turned around to the sideline and gave them, gave them the middle finger. And that was brutally honest, you know? Yeah. And then he came out of the game and he, coach, can we score more points? Coach, can we score more points? Yeah, we're going to score more. No. Can we score more points? Can I score more points? Can I, you know, basically have the ball? So he wanted to make, make sure that Pete understood completely that, you know, he wants the ball. He wasn't this malcontent jerk in any fashion. I thought that he was silent, misunderstood, and extremely playful. You know, when i.e. when played the Huskies at Cal and he got on the golf cart and was cruising it around and trying to take people out from the band. <laughs> yeah, the I, I you know, another reason I, I really uh decided in a strong way to get involved in uh supporting the film and working with David was because I played high school football and I played um inside linebacker a little bit of center until I just wasn't large enough to play that position any longer, um, getting up towards uh, junior and senior years. But I did play linebacker um, for uh, the entire time on the D side. And um, I just remember what it was like, the intensity of the game and um, the uh, aspects of collaboration with others when you're, you know, Literally, your physical, you know, safety <laughs> is on the line because uh, you can get hurt in football. And uh, the joy and intensity of those victories and defeats is something I'll never forget in that capacity. I didn't play in college because I didn't have the, uh, the equipment, so to speak, not really uh, big enough dimensionally to get into that level. But um you know, when I see Marshawn in that cart, like in Cal and that footage, like I know exactly how he's feeling and what's going on and how um, that uh, that joy and that connection, you know, takes you over and you go with it. And um, that's part of who I am, too, you know, as a person. And, and that just rang my bell, man. I was like, I love this guy. I get it. Yeah, and he he was in such a unique um, group when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. You know, the Legion of Boom was very outgoing, um, honest-speaking type of teammates. 
it, it was definitely like the the right time for all that to happen and with the right coach and the right you know very liberal city here and then the opportunity to you def- I feel like the second Super Bowl when they threw that ball and I threw my kid off my lap <laughs> across the why didn't we not give it to Marshawn there I think that did have some damage and made him want to retire plus you know sports hernia and putting those mesh things in your stomach doesn't feel that good either oh uh, yeah and then he had the opportunity to go back to Oakland and, and play and uh, seems like it was a pretty good career for that guy you know, I think he made some great political stands. He had a you know ten thousand yards run, rushing. He won a Super Bowl. Got to see you know a couple places. Not not probably doesn't miss Buffalo much, but yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, I, I thinking back to um, an undefeated season I had in high school. You know, all glory is fleeting. That's the essence of what it is. Yeah. So the point is to strive. Right. And to be present when that success is there. And I get chills just talking about that here on the podcast because that is, you know, uh, that's the truth. That's the truth, Ruth. Hey, um, how do you think the analogies between like Pryor and Tupac and and Marshawn displayed throughout the movie? Well, David uh, and and James um, uh, beautifully unearthed. Many of the uh, dynamic and powerful personalities and truth tellers from um, Oakland itself, hmm. um, everybody from um, you know Bill Russell to yeah. um, you know to Tupac, um, and uh, also authors, um, other controversial figures like Jack London, going back into history in order to sort of create an understanding of how people from Oakland, um, what their spirit is and, uh, their, uh, their own sort of, uh, refusal to be, um, uh, marginalized or, um, refusal to be taken advantage of. And the, uh, the intensity and the grit of that is something I definitely connect with also, um, because that's um, that's a mindset of a of warrior, you know, to a great degree, and so in particular, taking the film uh, to Oakland, which had always been in my mind when I came onto the project, I mentioned to David, you know, we should screen this film uh, at Ground Zero or as close as we possibly can to it, and um, David agreed right away, and we had been in discussion with uh, some folks in Marshawn's camp about screening the film uh, at Oakland Tech High School before the world premiere. I mean, I thought it was important enough to um, approach them and try and bring the film home before it actually had its festival premiere. Um, We were in that discussion. Things didn't work out. So as the film started to roll out, I knew that we had to bring it back to Oakland and bring it home. Now, you guys rolled this out in July, was it? Yeah, we were at the uh, Seattle International Film Festival, had two sellouts here, added a third night, and had packed house for a Sunday night screening, which was just amazing. The interest in the film was uh, really strong. And uh, we uh, have gone on uh, to screen in 
various different markets while simultaneously getting the film out um, via what we call in the uh, film business transactional VOD, which is basically Amazon and iTunes, where uh, people can uh, rent the film or purchase it, make it available that way. Um, in addition to uh, the continual screenings that are going on now around the country uh, by invitation, uh, the Oakland piece for me was, uh, as a consulting producer, sort of my, my be-all, end-all, because I think maybe there's a model that might benefit the independent film industry in the future, and I think, I think communities are prepared to support this. But the idea of um, a filmmaker bringing a film to a place of origin if there is a connection there, like in our film with Oakland, because of Marchand's um, having grown up there. Roots. Yeah, his roots. I, I think that that, as a producer, may in a way be as important um, as, you know, gaining access to, let's say, some type of uh, festival platform that's well known, you know, the Sundances of the world. Um because when you show the film, as we did in Oakland, and you offer it up to the people who are responsible for its creation in many ways, that connection and hopefully that uh, embracing of those messages and validation and affirmation of the, the struggle and intention of their lives, like, man, to me, that's like where the rubber meets the road. That's direct to consumer type thought process if you start s saying that okay we don't put a film in a film house and you can get it on itunes for nine bucks is that going to hurt the profits for the actors and the directors and the people that are participating in the movie because i know like music they barely see any money now from the itunes downloads and stuff like that would that happen in the acting industry too well i think that um the physical media, and you know, I'm I'm 52, so I saw this transition from physical media, which would have been back in the day, uh, first VHS tapes when I was younger, and then DVD, and then Blu-ray. Um, the margins, profit margins in the physical media, were much higher for um, all of the distributors and manufacturers. Now that we're in a world of digital downloads where there's no more physical media. The word sort of on the street when it started was all of these uh, physical media dollars are going to translate to um, digital quarters, but there's going to be a lot more of those quarters. The thing that wasn't anticipated was the volume of content was going to increase dramatically because the cost of production and um, the cost of distribution uh, fell because of technology, which means you ha now have where you had a thousand films competing. Now you have a hundred thousand films, and so going after those quarters um, is much more difficult because it's difficult to break through, right? Because mm -hmm. there's that much more content. So then, from and now we're in the world of the producer then the real object has to be how do I reach my core constituency with this, you know, film? Who is my core market? Who um, has the strongest connection 
to this. And that's why another reason other than sort of the, uh, you know, uh, inherent rightness of bringing a film back to its home community, it's also important for marketing and for the film's distribution because it's got to resonate there. It can spread from there, but it's got to resonate there. Speaking of that, there was another movie made about Marshawn that he crushed right away. And I know you guys weren't in contact directly with Marshawn to get the okay for this movie. Um, well, there is a story there, actually. Tell me. So, um, and this is before I came on, but um, as uh, um, shared with me by um, David Shields, the director, he had reached out a number of times to Marshawn through Marshawn's um, representatives, agents, sports agents in this case, and said, we're doing this film. We'd love to talk to you. And the response back was very direct and very uh, uh, polite. It was, we'd love to be involved, but we need to have editorial control of the film. And so for a documentary filmmaker, that's impossible Mm -mm. because it violates your journalistic integrity. So David's response was, we're glad you're interested in the film, but we cannot relinquish control editorially of the film to you. And their response was, once again, you know, very direct and, and, and polite, was, okay, um, that's fine. Go on your way. Make your film. Uh, we will not impede you. And so we operated for, or David operated for a couple of years under that umbrella. They did say, when you're done with the film, let us know. So I came on um, about a, a little over a year ago. And when we were done with the film, we got in touch with the agents and we said, okay, we're done now. And um, their immediate response was, okay, can we see it? And so we offered it up right away. And we saw from um, our tracking on the Vimeo site that uh, there were a couple of plays right away in Fremont, California. And we knew who that was. And then we, uh, we waited for a response. And we were very overt in inviting Marshawn into the tent of the film. And uh, his agents basically said, uh, we respectfully declined to participate in, let's say, the uh, world premiere of the film. Uh, and we asked, I think, one more time for one more appearance possibility uh, for him potentially to support the film. And they said, no, we respectfully declined for that. But something happened in Oakland. And I don't know if you know about this yet. Mm-mm. I told you to save the story last time I talked to you. Okay. So tell me now. So... I'd mentioned before in the podcast that uh, we were down in Oakland at the uh, New Parkway Theater, an amazing community cinema I'd never been to before. Um, Two screens there. They serve food. um, They have popcorn. um, And they just have this amazing um, rooted structure into the community in terms of the films they show, both legacy films and also uh, first-run independent films kind of couches and chairs, uh, like a melange like of different furniture in each room. A speakeasy type. Yeah, exactly. And so we're there, two sold-out screenings. We're at the end of the second Q&A. Um, Michael Smith from ESPN was there moderating, and uh, Professor uh, Harry Edwards was there moderating uh, with David 
for the um, screenings. And as I mentioned before, we were wrapping up the second screening with this very poignant commentary from a woman in the audience. And this gentleman standing next to me kind of taps me on the shoulder and he goes, hey, man, you running this? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't think so. But, I, you know, I might be able to help you out. And he's like, I really want to get a question in before this Q&A ends. I'm like, cool. So I go up to David, whisper in his ear. Hey, David, guy next to me, make sure you call on him, you know, before we wrap this. David's like, okay. So um, all of a sudden, you know, guy next to me raises his hand, gets picked. And um, he asks a really pointed question, like right away, which is, you know, why wasn't Marshawn in the film? Because the film, from his perspective, might have been something different, maybe better, if Marshawn had been interviewed. And so David explained what I had explained here on the podcast, that we had approached them and they wanted to um, control the outcome of the film. And we uh, respectfully said we can't allow that. And they said, well, we respectfully, you know, uh, declined to participate. Good luck. Um, So all that was explained. And uh, he was pretty insistent, this, you know, cat next to me. And it provoked some really interesting and powerful discussion in the room. Not negative, but, you know, uh, lively. And um, it ended. And I turned to him and I said, hey, man, let's let's go out in the hallway and I'll, I'll give you the whole background, the detailed background on us reaching out to Marshawn. Well, out in the hallway, he turns to me and we're getting ready to converse about the details. And he says, I'm the head of Beast Mode Productions. Marshawn's production company. And now I see what's going on. That uh, he was there to check out the film and check out the audience response. So I talk with him more, more really productive uh, discussion. He's a filmmaker. He gives us his point of view on the film. It's all good. A lot of that was a really intense conversation. I'll never forget it because there was a lot of things going on from a racial perspective between him and me. Now that I look back on it, where, you know, he would say to me uh, numerous times, you know, I'm not angry, you know, and because I've, you know, done a lot of work on stories that relate to uh, black history and black culture. Um, I'm very, very familiar with uh, um, intensity of prophetic anger in particular and how that comes across. And also, you know, having played football, et cetera, I'm okay when things get heated. You know, it doesn't create a fear response in me as long as, um, you know, uh, there's control in it. So um, that was intense. And we... And David came into the hallway and then talked with uh, this uh, gentleman out there. And then eventually it migrated out into the street. Now, I was talking to a couple of David's friends inside. And David was talking with Michael Smith from ESPN and the head of Beast Mode Productions out in the street. And um, I was wrapping up some emails and I walked out uh, to the front of the new parkway. This is, you know, Oakland at night kind of near the downtown area. And uh, David looks up at me and goes, Marshawn was just here. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, he was just here. I'm like, okay, so how'd it go? 
And basically, Marshawn walked up right out of the night, right up to David. David was there with four other guys and said, how'd it go? And uh, David said it went beautifully. And the long and the short of the conversation was uh, Marshawn said, you know, I wanted to hate on this film. He's like, but I couldn't because it's really good. Wow. And that was the moment for David as the filmmaker that is really superlative. Like that's a top, you know, moment Mm -hmm. for him in the context of this project. And for us as, you know, as collaborators where um, the subject appears literally out of the thin air and, uh, you know, recognizes the work. Uh, I can't even imagine that because if I'm Marshawn watching Marshawn, you know, it's got to bring some very intense memories back, you know, and and you see all those reporters around him and how you know, just painful it looked, you know, and then to sit there and watch that, you know, on film again, uh, to me, it would be kind of hard, you know, to see myself up there like that. Yeah, I'm sure it was a grind for him at a certain level. Yeah. um, To feel that. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's it. That's what it kind of takes to get to the the core, the essence, the truth of things is you got to go all the way in, you know, and I think that that for us was going all the way in. And I think that uh, his the head of Beast Mode Productions had recognized in the conversation and the Q&A and with the uh, community turnout that um, we were there and we we're giving it everything we had from our perspective in terms of offering this film up with, uh, um, you know, just the complete abandon to the audience. You know, this is yours. You do what you will with it. And we're prepared to take your, your, your feedback and commentary, good or bad, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it ends up being. And, uh, you know, that's a risk. But um, to me, you know, I, in my urgings with the, uh, the film unit, I was like, this is something that has to be done. So Danny Glover was the other producer. Um, is there any talk about you replacing Mel Gibson and remaking Lethal Weapon? <laughs> Danny is like so amazing. I sat across from him uh, at uh, uh, a meal before the world premiere uh, right over um, near the Seattle Center, near the Uptown uh, SIF Theaters. We're at a uh, New Orleans restaurant spot there. And uh, what spot is that? What spot is that? It's. I didn't know there was any uh, Creole food in the I think city maybe it's uh, Petite Toulouse. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that French, though? Um, French. French uh, Creole? French cuisine from New Orleans. Okay. Yeah. Lens through New Orleans. Um, so we shared, you know, a lot of information about where he's at right now politically, his life as an activist, and uh, his connection to Marchand over that um, time together. And, uh, yeah, the depth and dimension of that man and what he has seen and experienced and what he continually puts his, uh, you know, word, creed, and deed on the line for is really um, impressive. Yeah, he had some island ties for a while. I don't think he has anymore, but Yes Magazine. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. He was on the board of directors for Yes, and he'd come out here, I think, once a year to meet 
and uh, that's how I found out about the magazine because I, I saw him one day. You know, because every once in a while we, some superstar lands on the island. You know, seen Tyra Banks, Conan O'Brien, Danny Glover. Yeah, walking the streets. Yeah, it's a really special thing when you have somebody who has a certain level of recognition. You know, quote unquote, let's say um, celebrity recognition. Um, who is very tied into the community? Yeah, and understands the power of organizing and how it ultimately is how things actually change. You know, and get done more than um, single. You know, enigmatic figures that are in positions of authority or leadership. And uh, Danny's one of those people. And Marshawn's one of those people, too. Yeah, he has the power of community for sure. Yeah. Uh, both of them. I mean, they do do great things. What's what's going on with this BMX bike thing that Marshawn's doing? Do you know anything about that? No, I don't know. I mean, Marshawn's a, a hell of an uh, entrepreneur, and uh, he's always got uh, a lot of things going on, and... Uh, I love the spirit of how, you know, he puts things out there to see what uh, what's going to hit, what's not going to hit. You know, it's kind of like, you know, the way he runs where he's going to, you know, try this, try that, try this and that, and then find this and then go through that hole and then get through, you know. Everything he does because of his authenticity is a reflection of the nature of, uh, you know, who he is as both an athlete and a person, you know, how he's had to navigate his life. And the film touches on those things, those difficulties that arose for him. And uh, also the constancy of the guides, whether it's community-based through coaching or um, his uh, fellow teammates or, most importantly, his mom, you know, who is his guy. Mama Lynch. Mama Lynch. Shout out to you. Yeah. Uh, He comes out and plays in um, Steve Zakawani's uh, charity soccer game, too. Cool. (laughs) Yes and no. <laughs> you ever been tackled by Marshawn Lynch in the soccer field? It's... Has not happened. Would not like that to happen. No, he's a character, though, and he's always down to have fun, and he's always down to help somebody else out. Uh, I like that about his character, for sure. Yeah, that, that uh, generosity is uh, yeah implicit in him. So a couple things in the movie. One was I was surprised to know that Beast Mode was something that – he was born with, and <laughs> he was definitely beast mode early on, you know, in high school and junior high days. That was that was his nickname, and it, I always thought it was after that uh, earthquake run, you know, but it was not. It was, it's a lifetime of being beast mode. That yeah, story actually, was kind of cool. Yeah, I heard the inside on that, actually, from one of his coaches. Yeah. I was talking to um, someone that he'd worked with when we were trying to assemble the screening in Oakland before the world premiere. And uh, he was telling me about um, the moment when they decided as coaches that they were going to direct him into the, uh, the mode of a power runner and how when making that decision, they had talked about what that was going to look like and him going into being beast mode or going into beast mode. And uh, a lot of it had to do with practical football things. You know, there's reward and punishments on the football Mm -hmm. field. And I think uh, the coach said, he told Marshawn, anybody tackles you, gets you on the ground, you're going to have to do eight up downs when that happens. And uh, that gets exhausting if you get pulled down a lot. Yep. So, 
yeah, you know, that is the fuel for his fire in becoming a power runner. Now, it helps to obviously have the speed and the agility and the uh, the strength. Yeah, the arm strength. Jeez. Yeah, to make all that happen. But there's a moment in the film, actually, that is um, one of my favorite moments because it really speaks to Marshawn's uh, genius as an athlete and as a running back. It's when Pete Carroll is approaching him during a game and Marshawn's, I think, sitting on the bench. And Pete's really hyped up and he's like, you know, you got to watch out for this defense and this hole and this gap in this shoot situation and Marshawn's just looking at him and he says I'll read it and Pete's like no 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. you know no you got to look out for this this and when this happens hole. that happens and Marshawn says again no no I'll read it and then Pete's looking at him and Pete gets it in that moment and he just laughs and yeah. he walks away he was trying to over explain the play and Marshawn was just like I got it just give me the ball Right. And I'll read the situation as it unfolds in real time. Right. Right. So you actually have two complete genius people, right? Mm -hmm. With different approaches, all moving towards the same objective with a a deep and, and powerful recognition of each other's qualities, right? In that moment. And boy, watch out when that happens. That was some of my favorite parts is him talking to Pete. Yeah. Like, I don't know if Pete felt uncomfortable because you always see him you know very happy and upbeat and stuff like that there's kind of a little bit of pause when he talked to Marshawn like um am I really getting through to this guy and are we on the same page and there's a little bit of doubt it's kind of like when a coach says uh does that make sense mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. you know it's like you're asking to have that player qualify your statement well if your statement's good you don't need to ask right yeah, there's so much depth with Marshawn, you know, like, so, you know, when you're, you ever yell into a well before, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's something. When I saw a snake coming out of it. <laughs> <laughs> One part, um, I don't know if it worked for me in the movie was all the cat in the hat references, all the Dr. Seuss mm. um, images. Mm. There seemed like there was too many of them. And I was like, how does that really pertain without the narrative? I didn't know that he was a big fan of Dr. Seuss, um, but I didn't know how it pertained to the movie or how he's playing. Or it, is Dr. Seuss's thought the same as Marshawn's thought? Could you elaborate on that a little bit, that I, editing choice? I can't because that's really at the root of um, David's some editorial yeah. Yeah, decisions that David made with James. Um, I do know that people have brought that up before, some as being um, effective and some as not being so effective from like your perspective in terms of its repetition. Um, So, I mean, I get something completely different on both emotional and uh, informational and intellectual levels every time I see the film. And I've seen it a number of times in theaters. Um, Actually, more so, I'm fortunate in the theater than actually on the small screen. But the, I'm always looking into that cat in the hat, uh, those segments in the film and the context they're in, um, trying to get more and more out of that um, placement by David in terms of uh, you know what's being reported in, in those passages in the children's book, which pieces he's using at what point in the film, and trying to connect that um, with the message and you know the sequence that I'm watching. So even for me as a, you know, consulting producer, I'm still challenged by that. Mm-hmm. Look at that. 
I'm picking apart the movie. I might, <laughs> might know what I'm talking about. Hey, um, another comparison was the vo- the boisterous athlete versus the silent athlete. And there was a comparison of, of another great Seattle sports figure in Gary Payton and his intellect and how he talks so much trash. And then there's the complete polar opposite there's there's another all pro player in in marshawn that doesn't say anything and the few times that he, he um is shown in the movie talking to other players it's like i like you you're really good how are you today you know just <laughs> the craziest mr rogers type statements you could possibly make and i'm i'm trying to think you know how are they on the same parallel in a trash talker and a person that doesn't talk, you know, where's the superpower come for each one of those guys? Well, when you think about the, um, the mental part of sports, competitive sports, let's say team sports, Mm -hmm. you know, that, um, on a strategic level, right. To a degree, it's all about having an edge over your opponent and having them question their ability right in a moment to make a play or um to advance or even probably at its at its darkest root um some personal detail about their life Mm -hmm. that enters into the framework of the game where it's not normally used or welcome those are uh can be manipulations that are intentional in order to uh provoke distraction and therefore get them to relinquish their skill um, in a moment, and sometimes that all—that's all it takes to score points, right? There's that part of it, and then there's like, you know, the collegial part of it, which is not about strategy necessarily. It's about releasing energy, and it's about uh, identification in the glory of the competition. Mm-hmm. You know, you're both in there in football, uh, one group trying to move forward, one group trying to resist, you know? Um, And there's, you know, recognition of that. I mean, Marshawn is so, like, in the moment as a person. I think there's a sequence in the film where, you know, everyone else on the field after this loss is just down in the dumps and depressed because they didn't put the W up on the board. But Marshawn's laughing and having fun with the other players on the side, and he's just jovial. Yeah, that's a really good tackle. You did really good there. You yeah, know, and the other guy wants to just kill him, and he, he's immediately disarmed and has to smile. And yeah, I thought that was hilarious. Well, that's 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 big lens kind of perspective there. Yeah, and you know, Marshawn's not shy. He's just not playing the game, you know, and he he doesn't feel the the same way that you know we sh- we think he should feel necessarily, and. I love that he has an independent personality. Well, imagine if you just walked through this world and you just responded to things that tickled your fancy or, um, you know, um, made you curious. And that's it, you know? Yeah, I can't wait to see what he does next because you, you know he's going to continue to do great things. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, um, I have no doubt that many others, you know, especially being a producer who works behind the scenes – you know, to elevate um, other people's work and to um, offer up, you know, messages and emotional palettes like 
there will be so many people that are affected by Marshawn's work in the coming decades. Um, young people in particular that will uh, just reap the benefits of uh, his wisdom and capability. Yeah. Um, so what's next for this film? Just the distribution online? Yeah, we are um, in discussions through our um, terrific partners, uh, sales agents, car- cargo film and releasing with um, a number of different uh, media opportunities related to uh, subscription, video on demand, and uh, also a potential broadcast. The film is really interesting in that it is really, you know, kind of a, a basement tape in a way because it's um, all found footage that's stitched together. So it has kind of a, you know, maybe a YouTube quality to it, uh, which is not necessarily what, you know, let's say a grand HBO sports documentary, you know, would be about where you are relying on more traditional uh, production techniques and uh, interviews and uh, uh, high quality um, film footage from, let's say, NFL films. This is much more DIY. Actually, it's like the core in a sense of DIY. Like you could sit in your basement and do this if you had the patience. You had a year yeah. <laughs> to edit something. And the genius, you know, to be able to put it together. Put it together, yeah. Or the brilliance, I should say, to do that. Um, so it runs against, you know, some of those carriers, sort of, you know, what they do, what, you know, what they create. And so allowing this film to be shown on that network, it's a risk, you know, to mm-hmm. a degree, because it's not really what they do. And um, fair use also is a statement, you know, saying that we should be able to use this footage rather than license it because we are creating um, a story that's, you know, has a message and that has importance to it. Mm-hmm. That's another aspect to the film that makes it unusual in terms of partnerships with media outlets. So we're content to go along and offer it to people and markets through um, film festival opportunities. One in particular that I'm really excited about um, is uh, we're invited to the um, most well-respected global uh, documentary film festival in uh, Amsterdam that's coming up this fall. And there's a special sidebar that deals with films that are created from found sources. And we were so pleased to be recognized on a uh, uh, global level by um, the people at that festival, because that is, um, you know, above and beyond U.S. That's a a global thing. And Marshawn, like at a local level, is a son of Oakland. But now this son of Oakland is going to be at Amsterdam with all these other global filmmakers, you know, having his say in the context of Marshawn Lynch history. And and I'm 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 down with that as a producer. That's cool. like a that's a dream. Yeah. Well, I appreciate and I'm gonna let you go here because I know you've had LA to Portland to Seattle here all in twenty four hours basically, right? Yeah. Um I'm really looking forward to your movie about salmon. Um I love all things ocean, and and I love to eat salmon. And oh, I, yeah. And for you restaurants that don't tell me you have farmed salmon on the menu, uh, shout out to you. I'm not eating there anymore. Um, <laughs> a little sidebar there. I'm looking forward to recapping at a later date with you the Capitol Hill Massacre movie, Wallflower, that you made. 
Yeah, we're excited about that. We're actually uh, world premiering, or I should say premiering in New York City um, this Friday at the um, AMC Empire. Um, and then we're going out into uh, several markets. We were lucky to get chosen by AMC's independent uh, booking professionals as a film that they wanted to uh, roll out nationally. So uh, we're very excited about uh, that, uh, that work, Wallflower. What's it like being a big shot traveling all over? I wouldn't say big <laughs> shot, man. It's just, you know, I, it's one of the reasons I love, uh, you know, Marshawn so much. It's just, it's all about the process. and the well, you, you also make meaningful flicks, in my opinion. Thank you. Yeah, that's, um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to um, be able to uh, struggle to make those things work, both in a practical level in terms of, you know, how it, I, I am compensated so I can continue to do more work and, uh, you know, put uh, bread and butter on the table and then also, um, you know, choose things that resonate, that tickle my fancy and that, you know, speak to my capabilities. Um, it's, uh, it requires a lot of faith and a lot of trust in the people that you work with and in uh, kind of the road to come up under your feet. But I learned from a lot of uh, masters, particularly making our, our jazz series icons among us, that um, if the intent is right, there's good preparation there, and uh, you're in the moment, like a lot of great things can happen. Yeah, well, I wish you all the success and continued success. People can go get um, Marshawn Lynch a history on Venmo, right? Venmo, also um, on iTunes, it can be uh, rented or purchased. And then uh, if you have Amazon Prime, you'll be directed into uh, Amazon's uh, marketplace to rent the film um, or purchase it for download. Um, and that's been available for a few months and will be into the future. I, we're talking about potentially a, um, a campaign uh, for awareness in different uh, football-related markets this fall uh, that may happen. We actually did a lot of postering around Oakland Tech, um, so a street-like terrestrial campaign, and uh, we got a lot of really uh, uh, good feedback on that. So maybe we can figure out a way to duplicate that in other cities. Well, you got my nine bucks, and uh, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed watching the f- film last night, and um, I'm looking forward to showing some friends and family this movie again. Thanks, Tim. I really, really appreciate uh, you having me on. Yeah, John, you're always welcome. I really appreciate you taking the journey out here. I know it's a trek for you, and I I appreciate it, and that makes you my favorite producer of all time. You've been listening to the Bystander Podcast. Be kind. Up in the morning, yawning, cops watching, wait to kick the door in them. Cause they know I got them dope pins and it don't end, so my enemies got no friends. Yeah, it don't end. I wake up in the morning, yawning, cops watching, wait to kick the door in them. Cause they know I got them dope pins and it don't end, so my enemies got no friends. Yeah, it don't end. Uh, you come to my hood and tell me how to live, I think I'm good. That's not how it is. How it works, so I was at work on my craft like I'm leaving the earth, like trees in the earth, getting deep in the dirt. Not for reason I search, that's for the birds, like the season that trips. You see, yeah. at first, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then. Well, you're the only reason I hurt. At first, you're the only thing I need on this earth, then. Well, 
only reason I hurt Maybe, baby, that's just how I twist it But I know you got a hit list of misters who diss it So now I can't have your big lips Just wanna love you for real though But when you come to work, you wear your still toes So you can't feel no access to your seal So and so I gotta pay the bill though And get fed, barely have the meal slow Girl, yeah, love is all I'm really here for Wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watching, wake to kick the dope in Cause I know I got them dope pins And it don't end so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end I wake up in the morning, yawning Cops watching, wake to kick the dope in Cause I know I got them dope pins And it don't end so my enemies got no friends Yeah, it don't end uh, See, me, I always been a thinker See you telling me we gon' sink uh, Don't compute in my brain I don't just shoot, I'm careful of my aim And I'll be shooting to you Care for the same On the same tree like some pairs I'm just saying We all have prayers for the same Already there is the plan Cop you a ticket Have you a visit to where this is First, you're the only thing I need on this earth then. But you're the only reason I hurt At first, you're the only thing I need on this earth then. But you're the only reason I hurt Ralph Rain Yeah, yeah, yeah It's Ralph Rain